to get us to another piece of environmental justice is not just to stop the hazards and the harms, but it's also self-determination and sovereignty, freeing your mind to think and being free to think and determine what happens to you. There's a danger lurking among us. It hangs heavily above our homes. It seeps into our spaces. Like a friendly neighbor with a deadly secret, it is settled within our communities undetected. And slowly, it's been killing us. I'm Jay from Push Black, and today on Black History Year, we're talking about environmental racism. Climate change, air pollution, food disparities. When we talk about black liberation, Issues around the environment too rarely play a role. But the truth is, we need to be talking about it because our communities are being targeted. Toxic waste sites don't land in our neighborhoods by happenstance. Black homes aren't located by freeways by coincidence. And the cancers and diseases our people suffer at disproportionate rates, including COVID-19, are not by chance. It's by design. A fact environmental sociologist Dr. Dorsetta Taylor will discuss in a few. Dr. Taylor is a professor at the Yale School for the Environment and a leading voice in the environmental justice movement. She has contributed groundbreaking reports that have challenged the diversity in environmental institutions and authored books that identify the social issues within conservationism, like her 2016 work titled The Rise of the American Conservation Movement power, privilege, and environmental protection. Before there was even a name for environmental justice, Dr. Taylor was doing the work, and we're grateful to have her leading this conversation. And it is an extremely important one, because our health is under attack, and the futures of our children are at risk if we don't begin to take action where racism, economic inequality, and the environment intersect. What does black liberation look like to you from your perspective as an environmental activist? Liberation does mean freedom of choice, freedom to think, freedom to dream, freedom to achieve, freedom to be able to live in a very clean and healthy environment. It would be great if all of us as Black people lived in spaces where the air that we breathe was clean where our children had the ability to drink clean, fresh water, to go to school and be educated. And when I say educated, I mean educated in a way that they can think and break out of barriers and patterns. Uh, Liberation means the ability to say what you really want to do in your life and go ahead and pursue it and um, and be able to achieve it without being put in a box or having barriers put around you. So it's being able to dream as big as we want to dream and achieve it without all the strictures that are put around us to prevent us uh, from doing it. You know, the freedom to, to move around space, to move in time, and to be able to just accomplish what we can 
to the best of our abilities. And right now, most of us can't because all around the world, there's so many things that are designed to prevent us from being able to do these things. I'm just curious, knowing that you're from Jamaica, to what degree were you influenced by Marcus Garvey? Very much so, uh, because I remember in uh, in the Caribbean, you start high school at age 11 or 12 uh, under the British system. So we were high schoolers, and I distinctly remember being in high school, and Marcus Garvey's mother came and spoke to us. And we were so fired up and riled up because he was uh, one of us. You know, he came from neighborhoods like we came from. And she talked to us about the inability, no matter how many ways in which people try to control you, the one thing about you that they really can't control is your mind. And that's something I learned very early on as a young girl growing up in rural Jamaica, just even testing it out on my parents. <laughs> like, they can boss you around. They can tell you to do a whole lot of things. They can apply a little whipping here or there if they want. But what if I control my mind? And so Marcus Garvey's uh, teachings, which many of us, uh, 1969, 1970, 71, as black liberation was spreading around the world, we found ourselves, you know, reading things like from Miriam Akiba, from uh, black freedom fighters in the U.S., uh, South Africa, Priscil, uh, reading all those tenets of, um, of black liberation and putting them together. And, uh, and I know for myself, deciding very early on that I might not be rich, but what I have is a mind that I will not let anybody control. And one of the things I tried to do as a teacher, uh, I was a grammar school, high school teacher, and now college teacher, is to have especially young Black youth understand that, um, that that mind is not something to give over to anyone at all. And to use it then to reach back and help others and to do good with. Did any of the folks that you mentioned that you began studying during the time when Black liberation was more in the forefront, do you recall any environmental justice lenses or agendas or angles in any of that work at that time? The term wasn't around yet. So when you look at their work, and I think this is what I was drawn to, because I was kind of a little STEM girl, you know, lab experiments and the biologist stuff. And so I was really into that. But I remember, for instance, reading Paula Freer's work when I was about 16 or 17. I remember thinking, man, this is really good stuff. And the way we, uh, the way we in our schools try to bring this to the fore was when teachers, for instance, were being too draconian with us or trying to punish us, we would literally sit there and just argue with them in this very polite way, because in the British system, you have to be polite. Otherwise, very mm. bad things happen to you in school. And so by going out and studying Paula Frere, Stokely Carmichael, you know, Nina Simone, Miriam Makiba, all of those kinds of folks, uh, the Jamaican folks like uh, Garvey, it just broadened out for us um, the education. So these thinkers weren't 
aren't necessarily using environment as much in terms of naming it as environmental justice, but they were talking about it. For instance, when I went to school, the very same week I was in school and I was being introduced to Shakespeare and the writing of Shakespeare or Wordsworth or those, you know, British uh, writers and poets, I was also being um, exposed to Claude McKay, which grew up in the hillsides only about six miles from me. And one of the first poems of Claude McKay that I learned was a poem, The Spanish Needle, Lovely, Dainty Spanish Needles. And so as a young girl, I would spend time just looking around the garden and the fields and searching for the Spanish needle and just being engrossed in trying to understand it. So he doesn't use environment, but if you look at his stories and his poetry, it's all about the beautiful environment that some people might look at and say, oh, it's just a bunch of poor people in the third world. But he saw the beauty in it, and that just absolutely captivated me. If you look at W.E.B. Du Bois and look at his work, The the Philadelphia Negro, the book was written in 1896, and what he is writing about is environmental injustice in Philadelphia that puts Black people in the parts of Philadelphia where they were going to be exposed to sewage. They had horrible housing conditions. The streets were not clean. Trash was there, etc. And he writes about this. He doesn't call it environmental justice. But anyone who understands environmental justice understands that this is one of the earlier documentation of gross inequalities between African-Americans and whites. And what he does with um, the Philadelphia Negro is to move the argument away from these feeble-minded Black people who are just dying of all these preventable diseases to focusing it on the inequities in shabby housing, exorbitant rents being paid for hideous housing for Black people, the lack of health care, the lack of sanitation, the lack of all of these things that could account for the excessive death and illness, not ineptitude amongst Blacks. And so you talked about the value of understanding history. We can see that there. And so in 1793, the seat of government was not Washington, D.C. It was Philadelphia. In comes yellow fever. And yellow fever killed thousands of people. And the leaders of the city did not understand what the disease was, how it was transmitted, uh, why it was killing whites more so than blacks. And black women became the nurses that helped, you know, to heal the, the sick. Black undertakers buried the dead. Blacks went and did everything to keep the city relatively safe. And so they started to succumb to yellow fever, but people didn't understand at the time the connection between malaria, and if you had been exposed to malaria, as many Black people were, either from the times they were in Africa or when they were in Haiti, several Haitians came to Philadelphia um, after the revolution in Haiti. So people not understanding that that pre-exposure to malaria gave you some level of immunity to yellow fever. 
And so that's why Blacks were getting sick at the beginning, but they really helped to keep Philadelphia from just completely collapsing on itself. And Mm. so interesting parallels between what we've gone through in COVID in terms of Blacks being forced into the healthcare role of these epidemics that nobody understands. Look at um, the 1793 Philadelphia yellow fever outbreak, but also look at the contributions that Black people have made to this country when it comes to environmental health, environmental issues. Uh, So those ways, those are some of the ways in which I use history to help us to understand that we're not just victims, but we've also played very pivotal roles as Black people within the environmental space. And for us to embrace that as we start to fight harder to reduce environmental inequalities. Well, it's obvious there's never not been a time where black folks weren't essential workers. I'm I'm interested in understanding more around COVID-19 and environmental justice. What can we be thinking about here? Yes, we definitely need to be thinking not only about healthcare and access to healthcare, but also things like energy and water justice, but also just the structure of the American workforce and the inability, for instance, one of the things that's COVID, COVID has really laid bare for us is it's not just that there are racial disparities in who's getting COVID. And actually, if you look at newspaper articles sometime around March of last year, there was a running rumor about amongst Black communities in Africa, in parts of the Caribbean and in the U.S., that Black people were immune. The reason it's so similar to yellow fever, that was exactly part of what we saw in yellow fever. Whites were the ones getting it and dying first, and very few Black people were getting it. And this idea of immunity came in, and then Blacks in yellow fever were pulled into healthcare workers, the people cleaning up the mess, and then they started to succumb to it. So COVID is really exposing also the fact that people who were able to work from home were able to avoid that constant daily exposure. You know, it's not just working from home. It's who, um, if you're looking at college students, high school students, do you have space to be able to work, do your homework, do your classes from home? Not everybody has that. Data is showing us that only about 50% of African-American households have internet connections. What is that going to mean for us as we move forward, especially after we've gone through a year or a year and a half of kids having to be schooled from home without internet access. Access to food. So food access is going to become another big piece of the COVID story as we are seeing increasing hunger. And again, we're seeing it more heavily manifested in Black communities, you know, where people don't have a garden, they don't have um, a community space to grow food in. And as we, um, as we look back at this past year and go into the summer, issues around food, 
food access and healthy food will also become a big part of the COVID story. But also my students and I started to study Detroit, Flint, uh, Grand Rapids, and a few other cities in Michigan to find out about food access. I'm actually in the process in a few weeks going to start a report where I've surveyed Black farmers to find out how has COVID impacted both the farming operations, but also getting food to people. What we're finding in Michigan is that in some parts of Michigan, there was more than enough food uh, because the U.S. government, USDA, paid farmers to provide boxes of vegetables and fruits or dairy and they would just give these to people. Well, in parts of central Michigan, western Michigan, those are predominantly white areas. Uh, people are telling me in the survey that they had too much food. They were just inundated with food. Whereas the food organizations, the food distribution organizations in Detroit say they never had enough food to distribute. They had more need than food. So mm. as we start to think through what's going to happen this summer and are we going to need similar programs, we really need to be vigilant about, for instance, the farm to family food boxes, how these are being distributed and are enough of these getting into low-income black and brown communities or are we going to have white semi-rural and rural communities having way more food than they can handle I'm interested in taking a step back, actually, because I think this concept of environmental justice may be unfamiliar to many. Like we hear about criminal justice, we hear about other economic justice, but could you just give us a definition of what environmental justice is and what does it tackle in the day to day lives of black people worldwide? When I was in graduate school, I used to be the laughing stock of other Black students. As a matter of fact, sometimes I dread, for instance, just going over to the Black house. And the reason, the minute I'd get in, people would start laughing and go, oh, she's the one studying all that forestry and environmental stuff. And I cannot tell you how many people would come up to me and go, why don't you do something to benefit Black people? Uh, why are mm. you focused in studying this environmental stuff? And part of that attitude is part of why we're in this mess in the first place. Because while we were busy, and rightfully so, trying to get on the bus, on the front door of the bus, get into the front of the building, while we were looking at those kinds of civil rights issues, we let the ball drop. And if you look back at early civil rights, you'll see activists talking about lead poisoning and the fact that black children were showing up with excessive levels of lead poisoning. Uh, you also see activists talking about health, housing. If we look at something like the Montgomery bus boycott, on the one hand, that is about our rights to be able to get on the bus and sit on the bus. But in today's contemporary times, we call that transportation justice. Because yes, we can get on the front of the bus and sit on the front seat of the bus, but the worst buses are the ones that run in the black community. They're the ones that are most polluted and um, the clean electric buses 
and the quiet buses and the buses that put out the least pollution run to the suburbs. So in addition to fighting to get on the bus, we should also have been paying attention to what kind of buses come into our neighborhoods if they come into our neighborhoods. Another part of transportation justice is how frequently buses run in Black communities versus if you're on a bus line in white communities, which buses run express part of the way and which ones um, stop every stop. Believe it or not, if you're on a bus that stops every couple of blocks, by the time you get off that bus, maybe an hour or so later, you would be amazed at how much pollution you might have breathed in every time those doors open and close, especially if you're sitting in the back of that bus, you're just absorbing a fair bit of pollution. If you're on a bus that runs express, you don't have to deal with that. It's a different experience. So we have moved away then from thinking through things like clean air. So in addition to fighting to desegregate housing, we also should have been paying attention to what's beside the houses that we're trying to go live in. And while we were not paying attention, all the freeways run right through the middle of Black communities. If you look at Detroit, um, you know, Black Bottom, Paradise Valley, these were very well-established African-American communities with single-family homes that people owned across the U.S., Detroit, Chicago, New York, the Bronx, Miami, uh, New Orleans. Massive freeways went right through the heart of these intact Black communities and tore them apart and turned Black homeowners into renters, into people who had to go and live in public housing projects because their homes were torn down for urban renewal and for freeway building. We weren't at the zoning meetings. We weren't organized enough to fight to save our communities. When such plans were made for white communities, they organized, they protested, they went to city hall, they sat on the board, zoning boards, and they prevented that from happening. So environmental justice concerned with air quality, so shutting down polluting facilities, identifying them, helping to get them cleaned up. Uh, we are concerned with, uh, of course, health, making sure that people are not suffering from excessive cancers, things like asthma. There are many Black families that as long as you can trace out the family heritage, you can find a history of asthma in families. It's not just because you're Black you have asthma. There are usually other factors that go with that that are environmental factors. And so helping people to connect those dots. Uh, cancer. They're Black families where, I mean, there's so much cancer in them, it's just unbelievable. Uh, and speaking as someone who's a cancer survivor, cancer is a difficult disease to fight, extremely expensive disease, but there are parts of the U.S. If you look at the Mississippi River, the stretch from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, where so many Black families have lived before slavery even ended, own their homes. One-fourth of all the chemical manufacturing that goes on in this country is done in this part, 90-mile stretch of the river. And it's called Cancer Alley because so many people have cancer from the polluting smoke and smog and toxics that are poured into the air. And so we're seeing a lot of death and excessive cancers there.
And people used to just think that was just a part of life or it, quote unquote, it just runs in the family. No, it doesn't. It's the environment, it's the air, it's the polluted water that people are drinking, the polluted air that they're breathing, the toxics on the food that they're eating that's contributing to this. So more and more, we are realizing that this field of environmental justice really means having an equal opportunity to live in an environment that's just. It also means trying to get recompense for some of the harms and damage that have been done over time. So as you describe, you know, where our focus, for example, in the civil rights movement, largely was, and as you describe what the environmental justice movement is working on, it seems that the enemy is the same. I believe the enemy for black folks worldwide is white supremacy, but it manifests in different ways. So there's the overt nature of it that was obviously in the forefront in very clear ways for all of our existence here. But there's this invisible element of it, which consists of a number of things, one of which seems to be the issues that are going on in our environment that are causing us health issues. Would you agree that that seemingly invisible nature is hard to tie a face to it? It's hard to tie direct action to it, especially if some of these things happen, you know, health issues can build up over years before they become known. Um, would you say that sort of the different nature of it is one of the reasons why we haven't, as a people, paid as much attention to that as some of the other issues we face. Yes, you're absolutely correct. The difficulty in drawing a very clear connective line from here's an action and here's how it impacts you. Some of those connections we're just starting to discover now, you know, in recent decades. So it's not necessarily that people were lax. It, it was very difficult to understand Another thing that happens here is the jobs versus environment kind of false trade-off, where in many communities, corporations, uh, mayors of city, state governors would dupe Black people into thinking these are the only jobs you have. So here's this really great factory that we're putting into your community. What they weren't saying was what kind of jobs and then how is that job going to affect you economically? And why aren't there alternative jobs? So some people, even when they did know that they were getting sick, you know, were faced with a choice of, do I starve or do I continue to go to that factory or go to, um, you know, work in that facility and have my kids fed? And so, and that's a no, that's a no win kind of situation in any way you put it. And so one of the things that environmental justice organizations are doing as they've kind of gone through the 80s, early 90s phase of just really focusing on let's clean up a facility or let's shut something down, they realize that strategy is not enough. They have to be looking at job creation. So if you look at something like Green for All, and um, you know this is an organization that um, Van Jones and um, other colleagues of his founded out in California, they immediately linked it to job creation. 
So how about training people, for instance, to put solar panels on the roof of houses? And if you ever want to know where a lot of Black people's money uh, go is in their energy and utility bills, because Blacks tend to live in older homes that are very poorly insulated. So they're paying much higher electric bills and gas bills and propane bills because, you know, the heat is just leaking out their houses. Uh, many African-Americans live in part of the country that has a lot of sunlight, uh, but they can't afford solar panels. So these are some of the things now that environmental justice organizations are dealing with, like how do we create jobs? So energy-related kinds of jobs like putting up windmills, uh, installing solar panels. These are, these are jobs that are going to be around for a long time because most of the country still needs to get it together in terms of alternative kinds of energy. You can't outsource setting up a windmill. You can build them in China, which believe it or not, uh, you know, um, most of the windmill parts are being built in China and put on ships and sent here. What if we can get many youth to build these things right here in the U.S., build out the solar panels, install them, be the ones to repair them. These are high-paying energy-related jobs. So part of what um, many folks are looking at now in communities is how do you think through not just what do we shut down and clean up, but how do we translate? What if we have people trained in our community to do the remediation work of cleaning up a toxic site. Uh, those, again, those jobs are jobs that pay well. Once you've cleaned up a site, how about having a crew of people of color be the ones that do the new rebuilding and the redevelopment of those sites? So there are many folks that are moving in that direction. There are other things like electric vehicles, alternative vehicles that are very fuel efficient. What if every black taxi driver gets one of these? You know what would happen if he or she could reduce the amount they spend on gas as they do their Lyft or Uber or taxi work? Or even just driving around the hood and getting places. Um, can we start to bring some of that technology in terms of what it would mean for lower fuel prices, um, the ability to get transportation to people more efficiently and more effectively? Those are ways in which some people are now really starting to think about kind of the new economies that are out there. How do we do it so that Black people are not completely cut out of the loop in terms of the high-paying jobs, the long-term jobs, some of the technical and skilled jobs, but also the, the greener parts of the economy? Mm. Uh, in places like Detroit, we have groups like D-Town Farm with brother Malik Yakini, where they're bringing back farming into the city, where they, you know, they're, they're farming seven acres and eating healthy, eating everything they grow, and they're able to feed you know, lots of families with that food and they don't send their kids to McDonald's. You know, they are creating jobs out of that because they can take youth, um, you know, returning uh, citizens who have been incarcerated, get them into farming, converting, for instance, the old auto factories, old abandoned factories, get into vertical farming. 
you know how much food you can grow if you take an old abandoned factory and just grow things up the walls, use your aquaponics, get your tilapia, your fish, um, you know, grow it with your lettuce. So you have proteins, you have um, veggies, you have all of that stuff. And so there are African-Americans around the country kind of thinking through those kinds of things to helping youth start their own businesses, develop these kinds of things. And so to get us to another piece of environmental justice, and that piece is not just to stop the hazards and the harms, but it's also self-determination and sovereignty. And so it comes back to where we started this conversation, freeing your mind to think and being free to think and determine what happens to you. So self-determination is an integral part of Black liberation. If we can't determine for ourselves who we are, where we're going, what we want to do, what we should eat, how our food is grown, how we educate our kids, we're still colonized. What would you say are the forces that are in the way of Black folks' involvement in what you've described as far as the spaces and the employment opportunities? Yes. Okay, so sometimes we're our own enemies, because I cannot tell you how many times you talk to, like, young, you know, youth, Black youth, and they go, I'm not doing this environmental stuff. I hate bugs. And, man, the the, the number of syllables they put in the word bug. <laughs> I'm from the Caribbean, so you just say bug. (laughs) (laughs) But these kids then go, bugs. And or the thought that I'm not going and doing this farming stuff, that's putting me backward into slavery. Mm. What I often have to say to these children is slaves were not stupid. And they were not necessarily randomly just picked up and thrown on a ship. Slaves were brought to the U.S. because they had skills that white folk from Europe who couldn't do the work themselves wanted done. So every time I say to them, you bite into a sesame seed bun, who bought the sesame seed to the U.S.? Uh, Those were slaves that brought it. Who bought rice? Slaves brought the rice and grew it. Mm -hmm. So within slavery, people were targeted for the skills of growing rice, knowing how to do agriculture in the low countries like the you know, South Carolina in the wetlands areas. At one point, almost every horse racer in the country was black. And part of that comes out of the tradition of blacks being able to herd big cattle and other big game on the plains of Africa. Those slaves were brought in to herd in the U.S. to do the cattle drives um, from the south out to the west. And so it's for us to not think of if I do agriculture and going back backwards in time, but to think if I do agriculture, I control the food sources that I consume and my people consume. And I will take it back to a time when if you control the food source, you know, there's the reason why Archer Daniels, Midlands, and other Cargill and other big grain companies around the world put so much emphasis on collecting the seed stock, the global seed stock, and controlling that. Right now, most of the seeds in the world are controlled by about, you know, less than 10 corporations. Why do they do this? 
If you control the world's food supply, think about how powerful you are. Yet we as Black people don't even want to grow the smallest amount of things because we think it's putting us back in slavery. What we don't understand is how controlling that. So Black farmers in Detroit, across the South, are saving their heirloom seeds, they're, they're sharing it, they're passing it on, they're controlling that piece of our heritage that both uh, the white supremacy took from us, the colonizers took from us, but we also kind of ignored. And so that's a piece that's being recaptured and brought back into Black life. And if you look at the number of Black farms in the country, again, W.E.B. Du Bois called our attention to this problem way back in the 1920s as he lamented the loss of Black farmland and Black land ownership. And many people kind of thought, oh, man, you know, we just want to get away from the sharecropping and the slavery thing. So... 10 years ago, the percentage of Black farmers in the country hit an all-time low, below 1%. We're now seeing a regrowth where many people are realizing this is dangerous. As an entire nation of people, we have now forfeited the knowledge of growing our food, of controlling our food supply, of being able to say, Here's something I'm eating. This comes from a Black-owned farm, or I grew it myself. And that is a very, very dangerous path to be on. So the number of Black farmers have actually started to rebound as more people are getting into that, creating jobs. Farms have jobs. What you mentioned at the, the top of that was this idea that somehow us getting involved in this stuff puts us back to a bad place. But if you look even farther back than slavery, you'll see that black people, African people were much more in touch with nature and one with the environment and utilized it for the benefit of the community and didn't abuse it in ways that we're used to seeing now. So it's reassuring to hear that folks are getting more interested in, and there are folks out there like you doing the work to get our people involved in this. It seems like a win-win because, one, it's this idea of better, cleaner environments for us to live in. And then, two, the employment and ownership opportunities that come with this growing industry. Would that pretty much sum it up? Yes. And what's exciting about this kind of return to the land that we're seeing is a lot of young Black people are actually doing it. Some are going back down south and, you know, the family property that might still uh, be in the, the family, they're taking over some of this and, you know, starting small farms and expanding out. Some are definitely doing it in the cities. Many cities have vacant property. If you look at a city like Detroit, more than one-fourth of the entire city of Detroit is vacant land. Uh, that's just sitting there. And Detroit is a huge city. So we're seeing all over places like that. Even in Flint, uh, if you can't do a garden in ground, you can do raised bed gardens. And so we're seeing a lot of energy from young people, young activists that are really starting to, even some of them starting with what's called guerrilla gardens, 
take over a city block and start uh, growing. Need to be careful though that the soil is not toxic. But so we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm there in these younger folks really understanding that farming can be a business. I just finished um, some interviews with uh, farmers in Michigan, and one of them, one uh, farm I spoke with or I surveyed was a Black-owned farm. And when we asked them, how did uh, COVID affect what they were doing? And one of the things they said was they discovered that they could make a huge amount of money by going into microgreens. So, they decided to get some money to put up uh, some greenhouses because in Michigan, you can only grow about eight months of the year. And these farmers are going in on the microgreens um, craze, but they're realizing that they, there's a huge market for that, both within the African-American community, using, again, some of the, the greens that they can mix it with that are kind of Southern flavor. People are looking for that way, for ways to incorporate their culture into what they eat. It's called culturally desirable food. You have huge numbers of African-Americans living in northern cities that are disconnected from their southern roots and are just craving opportunities to be able to, you know, sort of eating kale, eat collards, or, you know, okra. People from the Caribbean love their okras or their kalaloo instead of spinach. And so this is where we have to now start thinking creatively. Are these things we can grow? Where can we grow them? Get those abandoned factory buildings and start growing them. There is money to be made from this kind of stuff. All you have to do if you shop at Whole Foods or any organic kind of grocery store, look at your grocery bill and you can see that Black folks have to be a part of these kinds of enterprises also. Absolutely. So, Dr. Taylor, you know, if someone out there is trying to understand this concept more or understand how it applies to their day-to-day lives a little more clear, what are some final thoughts you can leave with folks as far as really what's at stake here if we don't get more involved? It's literally our lives. We're losing, you know, African-Americans, both in the U.S., if you look at Africa, our life expectancies are much lower than whites. And part of the reason, it's just the environmental assaults that we are exposed to in our neighborhoods. So we have to start looking around our neighborhoods, start becoming healthy suspicion, collect water samples when you need to, just like the people of Flint did not sit down and take the city or the government saying that, oh, the water is fine. It is not fine if your kids are breaking out in rash, if you are ill all the time, start to talk to your neighbors. It doesn't all have to be a huge international display. Sometimes it's as simple as taking a notepad, going around the neighborhood door to door and collecting health information from people. So, Do you have a runny nose, headaches, nausea, vomiting? What are your symptoms? How many people in your house has cancer, um, asthma? Are your kids missing school because they're sick? For many community activists, that's where it started, documenting that. And just about every state in the country, virtually every community has environmental justice organizations. And some of these activists are 
unbelievable in terms of how much time they've spent educating themselves. They know the ins and outs. Uh, they can help people who are just starting out. Get the young people in your household involved. If your school does not have an environmental program, push and ask and fight for it. Um, historically, back colleges and universities have been slow to the game. Many of them are just now starting to put in environmental justice majors or environmental justice courses or even courses with the word environment in the title. So if we are having a system where many youth that go to low-income schools in the cities and in rural areas do not have any environmental courses and all the way through high school, they've cut these out. So start looking at that curriculum and insist that these courses be put back in. Definitely at the colleges, we should hold our HBCUs to the fire, that they start to have environment as a major, that students who are going through college can start to see these, take the courses, do the research papers, help their families, help their communities, and see how they fit in to all of this. Um, if you're going to be a lawyer, you can be an environmental lawyer. If you're going to be a doctor, you can also combine your medicine with understanding environmental issues. Doctors are key to this. Dr. Mona Atisha at the Flint Children's Hospital discovered the lead poisoning that was coming through the water. She was an environmental justice major when she was an undergrad at the University of Michigan, took those courses. And when she started to see one child after another after another showing up in her pediatric clinic with the same symptoms, she understood that this is not normal. Something else is happening and then, you know, collaborated with researchers and activists to open the Flint water case. So if you're going to be in medicine, be one of those doctors that you can spot these things for community members and bring it to the fore. Engineer. I know Black folk love to be engineer. How about being an environmental engineer? Again, so that you can, if you're going to construct something, you can construct it in a way that's not harmful to the community. But also, if something is already built, you can work with community members to understand the blueprint, understand what's going on. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Albany Jones, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Brianna Lambach, Courtney Morgan, Aquia Tate, Tasha Taylor, Leslie Taylor Grover, and Darren Wallace. Producing and editing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Ivana Tucker. Julian Walker is the executive producer of the podcast. <laughs>
and I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out.